The Hand by Guy de Maupassant The group gathered around Monsieur Bumoutier, the examining magistrate, who was giving his opinion on the mysterious St. Cloud affair. For over a month, this inexplicable crime had captured the attention of Paris, but no one had been able to solve it. Monsieur Bumoutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was speaking, assembling the evidence, discussing the various opinions, but not reaching a conclusion. Several of the ladies left their chairs in order to get closer, and remained standing, their eyes fixed upon the magistrate's clean-shaven lips, from which issued these solemn words. They shivered and trembled, thrilled by strange apprehensions, taken by the avid and insatiable need for terror that haunted their souls like the torment of unsatisfied hunger. One of them, paler than the rest, broke a momentary silence. But that's horrible. It's, it's supernatural. They will never find out. The magistrate turned to her. Yes, madame, it is quite likely that no one will ever find out. But with regard to that word supernatural you just used, it has nothing to do with the matter at hand. We are faced with the crime very skillfully conceived and executed, so steeped in mystery that we are unable to untangle the impenetrable circumstances which surround it. But I personally once had to investigate an affair which really did seem to contain something fantastic. Moreover, we had to drop the case for lack of any means to solve it. Several ladies spoke up at the same time, so quickly that their voices issued as one. Oh, do tell us about that! Monsieur Bermutier smiled gravely, as a magistrate should smile, and resumed. At least, don't start thinking I could, even for a minute, see anything supernatural in this adventure, for I only believe in natural causes. Therefore, instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we can satisfy ourselves much better with the simple word, inexplicable. In any case, in the affair I'm going to tell you about, it was, above all, the circumstances surrounding it and leading up to it which affected me. And now, here are the facts. I was then magistrate at Ajaxio, a little town of white houses, nestled on the shore of a beautiful gulf which was completely encompassed by high mountains. What I had to investigate down there were chiefly cases of vendetta. Some of them were superb, extremely dramatic, ferocious, and heroic. We discovered there the most remarkable examples of vengeance that one could imagine. Ancient hatreds, sometimes dormant but never extinguished, abominable cunning, murders amounting to massacres, and some deeds that were most glorious. For two years I heard only talk of the price of blood, that terrible Corsican prejudice which compels anyone suffering any injury to avenge it on the person who caused it, on his descendants and his next of kin. I saw the butchering of old people, children, cousins, until my head was full of these happenings. Well, now I learned one day that an Englishman had just taken a lease for several years on a small villa at the end of the gulf. He brought with him a French servant whom he had engaged at Marseilles as he was passing through. Soon everyone became interested in this odd person who lived alone, never going out except to hunt and fish. He spoke to no one, nor did he ever come to the village, and each morning he practiced for an hour or two, firing a pistol and carbine. All kinds of stories were told about him. 
They claimed that he was an important dignitary, fleeing his country for political reasons. Then they asserted that he was hiding out after having committed a dreadful crime, even citing some particularly horrible circumstances. I wanted to obtain, in my capacity as magistrate, some information about this man, but he made it impossible for me to learn anything, only letting himself be known as Sir John Rowell. I had to content myself, therefore, with watching him closely. But there is nothing, in reality, markedly suspicious about him. Meanwhile, as rumors about him continued to increase and become general, I resolved to try to see this stranger for myself, and I arranged to hunt regularly in the neighborhood of his property. I waited a long time for an opportunity. It finally came in the form of a partridge that I shot and killed right under the Englishman's nose. My dog brought it to me, but taking up the game immediately, I went to apologize for my improper conduct and begged Sir John to accept the dead bird. He was a large man, very tall and broad, with ruddy cheeks and a red beard, a sort of calm and polite Hercules. He had none of the stiffness said to be characteristic of the English, and he thanked me heartily for my good manners, speaking French with a British accent. In the course of a month, we met five or six times. Finally, one evening, as I was passing his door, I noticed that he was seated in a chair in his garden, smoking a pipe. I greeted him, and he invited me to come in for a glass of beer. I didn't wait to be asked twice. He received me with all the meticulous courtesy of the English, and spoke with praise of France and Corsica, declaring that he liked this country and these shores very much. And then I asked him, with great caution and on the pretext of a very lively interest, several questions about his life and future plans. He replied without hesitation, telling me that he had traveled very much in Africa, in the Indies, and in America. He added, laughing, I have had many adventures. Oh, yes. Then I started talking about hunting, and he gave me the most interesting sort of details on the hunting of hippopotamuses, tigers, elephants, and even gorillas. I said, These are all very ferocious animals. He smiled, Oh, no. The worst is man. He started to laugh all of a sudden, the hearty laugh of a big, satisfied Englishman. I have hunted man very much, also. Then he spoke of weapons, and invited me to come into his house to show me his collection of several different types of rifles. His living room was hung in black silk embroidered in gold. Large yellow flowers, brilliant as fire, played across the gloomy material. But in the center of the largest panel, a strange object caught my eye. On a square of red velvet, a black object stood out. I approached it. It was a hand. A human hand. Not merely the hand of a skeleton, bleached and cleaned, but a withered, black hand with yellow fingernails, bared muscles, and traces of old blood. The blood appeared to be encrusted around the cleanly severed bone, severed as if by a hatchet blow in the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist of this unsavory limb was welded and riveted an enormous iron chain, which was attached to the wall by a link strong enough to hold an elephant. What is that? I asked. That was my favorite enemy, the Englishman replied evenly. He came from America. 
His hand was sliced off with a saber stroke, and the skin was torn away with a sharpened piece of flint, and then dried in the sun for a week. Oh yes, very good for me, that. I touched these human remains, which looked as if they belonged to a giant. The fingers, extraordinarily long, were attached by enormous tendons which, in places, still retained some strips of skin. It was a terrible sight to see, this flayed hand, it had made one think naturally of some kind of savage vengeance. This man must have been very strong, I said. Ah yes, the Englishman replied mildly. But I was stronger, and I have used this chain to hold it. I thought he was joking, I said. This chain is quite useless now. The hand cannot escape. Sir John replied gravely. The hand is always trying to get away. The chain is necessary. I shot a questioning look at his face, asking myself, is he mad or just pulling my leg? But his expression remained impenetrable, tranquil, and benign, so I changed the subject and admired the guns. I noticed, however, that three loaded revolvers were placed on the furniture within the room, as if this man lived in constant fear of attack. I returned several times to his house, and then stopped going there. The community became accustomed to his presence, and quite indifferent to him. An entire year went by. Then one morning, towards the end of November, my servant awakened me, and announced that Sir John had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house with the chief of police and the captain of the constabulary. The bewildered and despairing valet wept before the door. I immediately suspected him, but he was innocent. Actually, the murderer was never found. On entering Sir John's living room, I immediately spotted his outstretched body lying on its back in the middle of the room. His jacket was ripped and a sleeve dangled from it, almost completely torn off. Everywhere was evidence that a terrible struggle had taken place. The Englishman had been strangled to death. His face, horribly black and swollen with blood, was frightful. It seemed to wear an expression of ultimate horror. He held something in his clenched teeth, and his neck, pierced by five holes which looked as if they had been made with iron spikes, was covered with blood. A doctor joined us. For a long time, he examined the finger marks in the flesh. Then he uttered these strange words. One might say that he'd been strangled by a skeleton. A shiver went down my spine. I looked at the wall to the place where I had once seen that horrible, flayed hand. It was no longer there. The chain, broken, hung free. I then bent down towards the dead man and found in his clenched mouth one of the fingers from the vanished hand. Cut or rather gnashed, off by the teeth just at the second joint. An investigation was undertaken, but nothing was discovered. No door had been forced, nor any window, and none of the furnishings had been disturbed. The two watchdogs had not been awakened. Here, briefly, is the official statement of his servant. About a month ago, my master seemed upset. He had received many letters which he accordingly burned, Often, in a rage that seemed like madness, he would take a riding whip and furiously strike the withered hand 
which was fastened to the wall and which was carried off. One does not know how. At the same time, the crime occurred. Usually, he went to bed late and carefully locked himself in his room. He always kept weapons close at hand. Often, during the night, he spoke in a loud voice, as if he were quarreling with someone. On that night, however, he made no noise at all, and it was only upon coming to open the windows that I found Sir John murdered. The servant was unable to name any suspects. I communicated everything I knew about the dead man to the magistrate and police officials, who conducted a thorough investigation throughout the island without discovering anything. And then, one night about three months after the crime, I experienced an awful nightmare. I dreamed that I saw the hand, the horrible hand, scuttling like a scorpion or a spider along the curtains and walls of my room. Three times I woke up, and three times I went back to sleep. Three times I saw the hideous remains gallop around my room, moving its fingers like the legs of some insect. The next day, the hand was brought to me. It had been found in the cemetery on the tomb of Sir John Rowell, who was buried there because no relatives had ever been found. The index finger was missing. And that, ladies, is my story. I know nothing more than what I have just told you. The ladies were horrified, pale, and trembling. One of them cried out, But that is no solution, nor even an explanation. We won't be able to sleep if you don't tell us what you think must have happened. The magistrate smiled grimly. Well, ladies, I'm afraid I'm going to, have to spoil your terrible dreams. I think simply that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead, but that he came to look for it with his remaining hand but I do not know how he did it. It was a vendetta of sorts. One of the ladies complained. No, that can't be the true explanation. And the magistrate, still smiling, concluded. I have already warned you ladies that my explanation would not satisfy you. <laughs>